Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Thank you, Josh, for leading us in prayer and band for leading us in worship. How are we doing this morning? I, uh, all right, we got one good. It's, uh, I'll just echo what Josh says. It's, it's been a heavy week for, for some of the people in our church, and so, um, you know, not going into names or anything like that. If, if you can just, the Lord places someone on your heart, I just reach out to one another this week. Just encourage, love on, um, send Bible verses, whatever you want to do. If, if the Lord leaves someone on your heart within our body, um, and it's just love on the body this week. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in Colossians 3 today. So I'm going to take a minute while you turn there. So Colossians 3, that's where we're going to be. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first four verses. And as you're getting there, I usually don't do recaps uh, very often, but as we kind of make this turn and, and really kind of begin the second half of our, our series in the book of Colossians, uh, I found it very helpful for, for my own soul uh, to just provide you kind of a halftime analysis, if you will, of what we've covered up to this point. Because again, as we make this turn, it's, it's really, really important for us to make sure we grasp the first two chapters before heading into the last two chapters of this. And, and so again, the reason for providing this kind of recap is, is not just to catch you up um, or bring to kind of to your remembrance what we've already covered. It's, it's really to help you make the connection between these two parts of the letter. In hermeneutics, there's this, which is kind of just the art of interpreting the Bible, there's this theological kind of principle used called the indicative and the imperative. And what we mean by that is the indicative is what are the objective facts that are found within the Bible, within the Scripture. And essentially what they mean by that is, is whether it's prophets or if it's apostles who are preaching and teaching and declaring the good news, what they're declaring is an objective fact. This is something that God has done. And because of whatever it is that God has done, it, that being the indicative, then leads to the imperative. Because of what he has done, we can now entreat you or require or command or exhort or encourage or lead you to live in a certain way because of what God has done. And so that's really what we're seeing kind of in these, these passages here um, as it's kind of playing out is this is what God has done in the first two chapters, which then leads into, flows into, what we're really going to be looking at, which is a lot of application in chapters 3 and 4. But it's important to kind of see that because an indicative without an imperative is kind of like faith without works. It's kind of having this intellectual understanding of what God has done, but if it doesn't lead to application, then we just kind of live out this licentious lifestyle that God's done all this, therefore there's nothing for me to do or for, nothing for me to respond to or nothing for me to live up to. And so therefore, I can just kind of do whatever I want. 
as we know in James, faith without works or indicative without imperative is death. It's dead. Also, on the flip side, for me not to bring you kind of a reminder or a recap of the indicative, what God has done, if we were to just lead into, here's all these imperatives, here's all these ways to live, here's all these ways to do faith and to do church and to be the church and to live out kind of the spiritual disciplines within the Christian life, if we do the imperative without an indicative, then at that point it's works without faith. And we also know that is legalism and also equal to being dead. And so for us, it's very important that we kind of draw in these two things. And that's why I love the way that Paul arranges his letters. Oftentimes, he uses this type of style of writing where he's always going to provide for you, this is God and this is what he's done. And because of who God is and because of what God has done, that then leads into now who we are and what we are to ultimately do in regards to that. And because of these truths about Jesus, kind of live this way, walk this way, talk this way, that we're going to be seeing in chapters 3 and 4, it provides freedom for us. It provides vibrancy. It provides a life in which when we do this and we don't do this, it actually leads to, for us, the truest life we could ever possibly live that's found in Christ alone. Not anything else that we would try to think up or do ourselves. Because we actually understand theologically and foundationally why one way leads to life and one way leads to death. So this is kind of the turn that we're making. And so the quick recap for you is, in the first chapter, Paul begins with this posture of thanksgiving. He begins with a posture of thanksgiving. Literally just writing out all the things that he's thankful for that God has done in this church in Colossae. And that begins with a posture of, I didn't do it, you didn't do it, we're thanking God for what He's ultimately done. So immediately, right out of the gate, he's thanking God for something that only God could do in His ability and not in the ability of the be started among the people. Because he knows if God removes Himself, or if God stops doing the work, then the people are going to be hopeless and helpless to ultimately accomplish anything that God has set out for them to accomplish, as well as their own spiritual maturity in the gospel. It's not going to happen if they're not praying and petitioning for the Lord to continue to do that in their lives. And that's why, again, he's thankful for it, and he is also praying and petitioning it. From there, and that's kind of, again, laying the theological foundation for this church is God, do, God does it, and in Christ is finished. So it's this finished work that God has done that He is then also continuing to do among them. And so because of those objective facts and that absolute truth about the person and work of Christ, we then see in chapter 1 this, this kind of fulfillment of this exodus of this new people, this new humanity. And what I mean by that is we see out of the land of Egypt. You know anything about kind of biblical history or Old Testament? Out of the land of Egypt, the Israelites were in bondage and enslaved. They were in a domain of darkness, essentially. And God brought them out of that domain of darkness through the leadership of Moses. And you can even symbolically see the baptism of these Israelites that, that Ransford covered for us last week 
as when they leave this domain of darkness and they pass through the Red Sea, it's a baptism for an entire nation, which then on the other side of it, as they are buried with Christ in baptism, they are then led to the newness of life, which is ultimately for them the promised land flowing with milk and honey. So we've got this imagery of God in Christ fulfilling what we've seen throughout the entire Old Testament of the nation of Israel. Because now, He is transferring us from a domain of darkness, delivering us from it, and placing us in the kingdom of the beloved Son, ultimately through baptism by faith in Christ alone. So this is what He's kind of working out in chapter 1, is really just God's entire plan of redemption. And that it's Christ who is doing it. You can even see some more um, symbolism in it, or, or... um, kind of allegory within the story of Moses as well, is like what is the power by which is given to Moses in order for him to kind of exercise all of these different things is this wooden stick, a staff that was ultimately given to him by which he's leading the people out with. And two, the same thing for us, Christ given a wooden stick in which not only is he just wielding the power, but he's sacrificing himself and placing himself on it on the cross. And by that same wooden stick that he ultimately dies on is the means by which he is laying the foundation of his life, his death, his sacrifice, his good news of the gospel for us. That is the power by which leads us out of our domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is the theological framework that Christ has established and that Paul is now encouraging the church in Colossae to lay the groundwork of everything that they are to build their lives on. This is who Christ is. And he then kind of goes on to say, like, why Jesus then? Like, why is Jesus the one who's able to, to do all of this? And he goes on in verses 15 through 21, and he just gives Jesus' resume. He talks about everything that Jesus is and, and really boils down to the fact that because he laid his life down and in this kind of realm of our world and our sinfulness and, and in the penalty of our sin, namely being death, the greatest power that is holding over us is death itself. That's the greatest power. That's literally the sovereign in which we submit to is death when we're born. Because as we are born as sinners coming into this world, that death is holding us. And we're captive to it in the domain of darkness. No exit except for God to reach His arm in with Christ. And why is He able to do that? He's only able to do that because Christ Himself being put to death defeats death by being risen and raised back to life Guaranteeing for him not only defeating death, but defeating sin by placing or absorbing the wrath of God on the cross. And then by defeating that sin, him being risen is him exercising and showing his authority over death, sin, and evil. And therefore, Jesus is able to look at anything and everything as we see in Colossians 1 and be able to say that everything exists for Him, through Him, and by Him. All things in creation 
are because of Jesus. And ultimately, as we're saying in this book, the new creation is also because of Jesus. So it makes Him preeminent over everything that exists. It makes Him the King of all kings. It makes Him the Lord of all lords. It makes Him the governor of all governors. It makes Him the supreme justice of all supreme justices. It makes Him the president of all presidents. It means that there is no other being in creation that has more rule, reign, and authority than Jesus Christ Himself. That's the indicative. That's what we base our foundation upon when it comes to what we do with our lives, how we express ourselves, how we live out what our passions and desires ultimately are. We always bring them back to the foundation of who Christ is and the identity in which He has bestowed to us. So that's chapter 1. And then flowing into chapter 2, Paul defends the reason for his ministry of this good news. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, became a minister of the gospel. Basically, at that point, he saw a complete shift in his life. At one instant, he was uh, going and knocking on doors and dragging out uh, men and women and children and imprisoning them or killing them because of their allegiance to Christ Jesus. And you see this complete shift when Paul himself is rescued from his domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And you see this shift in allegiance. He is all about Christ. The Christ whom he was persecuting, he is now proclaiming. And he has made his entire life revolve around this one ministry. I've got to get Christ to the nations. I've got to get Christ to the Gentiles. I've got to get Christ, as he has said multiple times, I've got to get Christ to Rome. Because for him, that's the epicenter of their entire empire, which is ruling and reigning over everything, to the point in culture that for them, Caesar is Lord. And so for him, i got to get to that in order to get Christ back to the rightful seat that he is sitting on which is in the hearts of everyone, Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And so he was very strategic in everything that he was doing in order to get the ministry out. That's why he says, I myself became a minister. And his ministry, as seen in chapter 2, was simple. Each preacher proclaimed the truth of the gospel and along the way, attack any false teachings that the people were being held captive by. What he's essentially saying is there is a right teaching, an absolute teaching about the gospel, about the true Christ and what he has done and what he is doing in the lives of the people to transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. So we've got to get that information out. We've got to preach and proclaim that information. And what was happening, just like as is the strategy of, of Satan and death and the evil and sin, is to distort and pervert any truth that God has. They're not creating new truth. They're just taking what God is doing and perverting it or distorting it in such a way that we think it's right, but yet, even if it's one degree off within our lives, causes us to miss Christ. And so people are, are taking this and creating their own regulations and their own rules and their own doctrines around what they believe 
Christianity or a good way of living would be that would ultimately attain the righteousness that God is expecting of us. Like We're not even talking paganism here. We're just talking religious leaders who think this is the way to God and it's ultimately creating rules about the rules about the rules. They're taking the Jewish traditions and customs and saying, let's kind of uh, sprinkle in our own dabble of rules and regulations that will ultimately not provide freedom for people, but will actually control and be held captive by it. And that's the strategy. And this is what Paul is attacking as we see in chapter 2 is, hey, it's, uh, it's not your rules and regulations. It's not any of the powers of the world or earth or entertainment or whatever it is that you think is leading to freedom. And it's not circumcision. Like just you going through the rituals of what God has, has established in the Old Testament, which were meant to just be shadows of the actual substance, which is Christ. He's saying those things are not going to do for you what Christ has done for you. And so he has to come in and he has to attack these things. And it's so, so, so important for us to understand that because what we are tempted to do, and the reason why I'm covering this again, is because when I start covering next week what it means to put to death the deeds of the body, and the following week to then put on Christ and the character of Christ and to live out the, the implications of that when it comes to compassionate hearts, and when it comes to a prayerful life, and when it comes to meditating on God's Word, we can immediately make those things, which again are imperatives, we can make them the indicatives and think that those things are actually going to be what provides life for us when it's actually Christ who is providing life for us. If we move on to the imperatives and forget the indicatives, we're no different than the false people in these Scriptures that He is attacking. That are literally holding people captive to something that is empty. In vain. And so for us, it is so important that we do not submit to anything that is not ultimately and that we understand the new identity that He has given us. Because it's out of that identity that we're able to actually tap in what it looks like to abide in Christ and experience freedom in it. Not a guilt or shame because I didn't check off my Christian boxes this week. I didn't read enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't share enough. I didn't... Uh, worship enough, I didn't do this enough. Like If we're thinking through that within our mind that we didn't do enough, then we're no different than these false teachers. We're still living in righteousness as if we have to attain it instead of already possessing it. That's why I love what John Piper says, at the heart of what it means to be Christian is to receive a new identity. In Jesus, we do not lose our true selves, but we become our true selves only in Him. We begin to walk in the newness of life, our truest selves in the way of Christ. And which brings us to the second half, the turning point, the imperative. Colossians 3, 1-4. through I'm going to read it for you real quick. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Indicative. 
If then you have been raised with Christ. That's done. Imperative. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, going back to indicative here, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So I want you to see the connection here. If you have been raised with Christ indicative, then seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above imperative. Why? Once again, because you've died. You've died. That's your former way of life. Your former identity. Your former passions and desires. The former things that led to death and anxiety and stress and hopelessness and helplessness and this isn't working out for me. All of those things are dead if you have been raised with Christ. They're dead. Which means the freedom in that and the vibrancy in that and the life in that is that they do not hold you anymore. They have no power over you anymore. You are not held captive to anything in the old way of life whether it's sin or flesh or temptations or desires or anything that is contrary to Christ, has zero power over you. Because you're raised in Christ. You possess within you all of the authority that Christ possesses when He defeated death and sin and evil and rose. Therefore, when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with Him in glory. Which means simply this. Where Christ goes, you go. Where you go, Christ goes. And honestly, when I was younger and, and a youth pastor, uh, especially early on when I was like 21, 22, those years, man, I would use verses like that to keep students from doing stupid things. Hey, wherever you go, Christ is watching. Jesus has got eyes on you. And it's like, and, and really all that is, is, is kind of creating for them this, this idea or this mindset that God, yes, He is a judge, but He is a judge waiting to smite you, waiting to uh, yell at you, waiting to discipline you, but it was in a negative connotation. And yes, does God discipline those whom He loves? Absolutely, He does. Just like, yes, Ezra, I discipline you. We discipline our children because we love them. Because they don't know in their flesh what they want that will actually be life-giving to them. They still need exhortation and encouragement and teaching and leadership and discipline in order to get there. We do too as humans, as believers in Christ, we, even though we possess all of the righteousness, do not know how to fully walk in that righteousness. Which is why He provides for us these indicatives and imperatives. The indicative is, you are righteous. And you are holy. If you've been risen with Christ, that is who you are. That is your new identity. But guess what? Just like a toddler who barely knows how to walk, you barely know how to walk. 
and you're going to mature, and you're going to get to where you're running, and that's fantastic. But then you're going to get to where you're driving, and you're probably going to run into things like mailboxes and trash cans and other cars and different things. But you get better at that as well. And then you have entry levels into careers, and you're not that great at them, but then you get better at them. Like you mature in life. Same thing in our spiritual life. We mature in the righteousness that we already possess. We continue to grow in it and are developed in it. And that's exactly what God is doing for us when He is disciplining us. Because discipline from God is reminding us, hey, you're acting in your old way of life that you no longer possess anymore. That's not who you are. You're literally having what we call a temporary identity crisis. This isn't you. And you're not even loving the choice that you just made. You feel guilty about it. But the guilt is not driven by, I'm now experiencing death. The guilt is you're robbing yourself of the glory that is in Christ when you walk in the newness of life. When you live out a lifestyle that is ultimately honoring to Him and defined by Him. We're robbing ourselves. And so Paul is drawing them in. If you're being held captive to these empty, vain, deceitful ideologies and worldviews and earthly powers and religious regulations, whatever it is, you have to change the mindset to see that because you are risen with Christ, you need to seek the things that are above. And you need to set your minds on the things that are above, which is where Christ is ultimately. Like, what are we actually seeking our minds on? How do we do that? And that's what he's trying to answer the question here. If Christ is holy and Christ now is our life, how then is genuine holiness lived out? Again, not attained. We're not like going to provide over the next few weeks just applications for attaining holiness or righteousness. You already have it. You already have it. So it's not how do I become holy. Rather, it's how do I take this holiness for a drive? How do I speak with the holiness that I already have? How do I make decisions with the holiness that I already have? How do I worship with the holiness that I already have? How do I study with the holiness that I already have? How do I love with the holiness that I already have? How do I do all of the things that God has called me to do with what He's already given me to do it? How do we merge those two things together? And this is what he talks about. One way the Colossians attempted to do it, again, was by religious activity. And that's why I'm glad Paul does something here in the Scriptures before he gets to the religious activity. Because there is activity. Like Christianity is not a passive, a passive spiritual existence. The only thing passive in Christianity, for Christians, is the salvation in which we receive. Because again, we're in domain of darkness, hanging out, 
not experiencing any life there. And passively, we sit there while God actively comes in and grabs us and transfers us to the the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's the only thing that passive happens for us. From this moment on, as we are risen with Christ, and as we are seated with Him in the heavenly throne, and as we are um, co-heirs with Him as an inheritance of all things, as we are literally living out and receiving His righteousness on a daily basis, no longer is He saying just be passive. Now He's saying, guess what? You get to be active. You get to be a player in the game. And it's not to attain it, and it's not to lose it, it's to live it. It's simply to live it for our good and for His glory and for the good of those around us and for the joy of our hearts and for the vibrancy of life, for all of those things to just literally fill up and overflow within us so that whether we're loving or whether we're hurting, whether we're uh, living on the mountaintop or living in the valley, whatever it is, we are unwavering within our soul and within our spirit because we know in that place Christ is. Wherever we go, Christ goes. Whatever we experience, He's there. He's experiencing it with us. He's walking with us. We do not have a high priest who is uh, uh, um, unable to understand what we walk through because He's walked through everything way more than we've experienced. To the point of death on a cross. He's there with us and He's helping us throughout this entire thing. So yes, what we will see in the coming weeks, specifically in verses 5 and 8, you're going to see kind of this, this combination of what our old self looks like. What that old way of life looks like. What we are tempted to be held captive by. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to break it down a lot next week. But really what you could do is you could put it into two categories. Lust and hatred. Lust and hatred. That's our old self. Lust, we're just tempted by anything that's going to be entertaining for our flesh, going to kind of indulge ourselves, whatever that looks like. So we're going to, for some people, that's, that's sexual lust. For other people, that's um, entertainment lust. That's career lust. That's relational lust. That's parenting lust. That's whatever you want to fill in that blank of something that you're trying to seek after to indulge yourself. Lust category. The second one is hatred. When it doesn't go your way, you don't like it. So when it goes its way for your neighbor, or for your friend, or for your family, or for your coworker, or for whoever it is that ultimately gets what you wanted, hatred wells up. Bitterness wells up. And so we can really define all of our relationships that way. Everything can be defined into those two categories. And what they were trying to do in their context was take lust and hatred, and we'll just kind of refer to them as like wild animals, just these beasts, lust and hatred. They were trying to put them in cages within their own souls and hold them captive in these cages by their religious uh, regulations, by their asceticism. If you remember what I mentioned by that, that's just this severe treatment of the body to try to create um, behavioral modification. And it's kind of, as, as Jesus says, like if your eye is going to cause you to lust, then it's better for you to gouge it out. They're like, let's do that. Where Jesus is ultimately like, you're, you're kind of missing the point there. You've got to kill yourself by putting it to death. 
in order to be risen with Christ and the new identity to actually have the ability to say no to these things. So lust and hatred, again, they're trying to kind of hold these creatures in cages. And Paul has something different for that. They've got to be killed. They've got to be killed. More of that next week. The week after that, we're going to be looking at specifically what does it look like to then put on Christ. If we're putting our old self to death and our new identity is Christ, how do we then put on Christ to begin walking in compassionate hearts? It's actually then showing you the opposite of lust and hatred as it refers to us as the holy and beloved. The holy and beloved chosen ones of God. So Paul's going to do a really good job providing a lot of heavy application for us in the coming weeks. But the last thing that I want to kind of draw your attention to here in these first four verses is really just this shift in mindset for us. And I think this is important for us because, again, this is going to be an ask of you to participate in something that is going to create activity within your life. But it's necessary, as Paul is really arguing for us here. You see, this genuine, gospel-centered, human existence, human experience, which is really what he's after. He's after creating who our true selves are in the gospel. It's only going to happen by us doing these two things. And it's actually not getting to religious activity yet. Setting your hearts and setting your mind on the things that are above. Setting your hearts and setting your minds on the things above. We can do one of those. We can't do the other. Here's what I mean by that. We can set our minds on the things that are above. But we have no control over our hearts. We don't. That's not our job. Our job is not our heart. Actually, if you, if you look at the landscape of our world right now, they're doing a really good job on pushing us towards the thing that we actually have no control over, which is follow your heart. Lean into your heart. Trust your heart. Do what your heart longs and desires. That's what messed us up in the first place. Because they forgot in their mind who actually holds the keys of their heart and actually transforms their heart. So when we set our minds on the things of this world, our hearts will follow. When we set our minds on the things that are of Christ, our hearts will follow. Our hearts will follow. And so the three kind of focal points of this appeal to the Colossians are this. The fact that Christ's people are already risen with Him. The appeal to an activity of the mind and will. And then the object of that activity. And it's a sandwich again. Paul loves doing kind of things in sandwiches. He starts off with, you've been risen with Christ. Remember, it's about Christ. And it ends with focusing on the object of what you're setting your heart on and setting your mind on, which is the things that are above, the things that are in heaven. Who's in heaven? Where Christ is seated on the throne. 
So it begins by being risen with Christ and it ends with Christ being seated. Which means all the work is done. So we're setting our hearts and minds on Him. And by setting our mind on Him is by us meditating, meditating on everything that Christ has done. And this is going to take, again, this is not going to be passive on our part. This is an activity on our part. This is going to be us getting into or increasing the knowledge of His will, as He says in Colossians 1. We will be renewed by the increasing knowledge of His will. We need more information about who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, who the Father is, and the work and activity that they have been doing for several millennia throughout the people groups over the entire world, we got to see what they're doing and who they are. Because that drives and informs us in who we will be and continue to become. We've got to have it. And that's why it's so important for us, again, as we saw in chapter 1, that we have to increase our knowledge. Plain and simple, guys. We have got to increase our knowledge. And if you're like, I need you to spell it out for me. We need to be reading our Bibles more. We need to be studying our Bibles more. We need to be teaching our Bibles to one another more. We need to be memorizing those verses. We need to be signing up for if there's uh, Bible study classes or if there's a, a, an institute class on Christian belief, if whatever it is, we need to be tied to that. We've got to increase our biblical literacy. That's the work of the church. I love what Jen Wilkins said this week. Uh, Josh is in a little cohort with, with Jen Wilkins and a few others. And in that cohort, she said, the primary job of the church to equip the saints is to increase their knowledge of the Lord. That's the primary job of the church to equip the saints is not to create an experience that stirs your heart. That's not our job. Our job is to get the knowledge of who God is into your minds so that as it's in your minds and you're meditating on it and you're thinking about it and you're dwelling on it and you're setting your mind on the things that are above, God comes in to conform your heart to the identity of who Christ is that you now know. His job is the work of your heart. That's why he says in Ezekiel 32, it's not Moses who gives a new heart to the people who have a heart of stone. God is the one who gives a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive, a heart that is beating to those who have a heart of stone. That's His work. That's the work of the Spirit in you. So for us, we've kind of created this kind of flip side. I'm not saying like for us as in the district church. I'm saying for us as, as a culture of Christianity is we've gotten to this place of we've got to feel it before we know it. And your heart cannot feel what the mind does not know. Plain and simple, guys. Your heart cannot feel what the mind does not know. That would be like for those in this room who are married. That would be like you feeling the love for your spouse without even knowing their name, knowing what they like, what they don't like, knowing what they struggle with, knowing what they thrive in, what excites them. 
That's called a stranger. Christ. We are married to him. We're married to him. We need to know him. We need to increase the knowledge of him. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years or you've been a Christian for three months. We're all called to that. I had someone who was really interesting this week. They're like, man, you're a pastor. So, so if that means you are a pastor, that means you've gotten to the level of Christianity where, where you're like, I'm an expert on X, Y, and Z within Christianity, and therefore I can now teach and preach and lead others when it comes to that. Uh, and, and I was like, that is the furthest thing from the truth of Christianity and, and absolutely of pastors. We will never graduate in understanding the gospel. Yes, to a degree of, of understanding the gospel and Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but in the implications of the gospel within our lives. As Jared C. Wilson talks about, gospel deeps. This is a great book. I'd encourage you to read it. There's a depth to the gospel that never runs out. And, and one of the beauties, at least for me, is the more I dive in, and the more I read, and the more I study, and the more I memorize, it actually just reveals how much I don't know. Which then begins to fuel kind of the drive of like, I'm, I'm, I'm chasing it, I'm after it, I, I want more. I want more. And so if you're in this place where you're like, you know what, I've, I've grown up in church, you know, I feel like I know enough Bible verses and this and that, and I feel like you're just being held captive by your old way of life. You're being deceived right now with empty, vain, like it's not working for you. I guarantee it's not working for you. You don't know enough and you never will know enough. And that's good. It's a good thing. The same with your spouses. You don't know enough. You need to continue pursuing and getting to know. So that you're more in love 10 years from now than you were 10 years ago. Same with us in Christ. The already not yet. We already have him. He loves us now more than he ever has and he ever will because he loves us perfectly. And on the flip side, the more that we get to know him, and continue to see what He is doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us, our heart just bursts into this compassionate heart that we're going to see in a few weeks. And this overflowing, as I kind of like to say, just overflowing exhaustion of, of, of I'm so, like seeing Christ in what He's doing so drives me out of myself to this other person-directed mindset that I exhaust myself, but yet because of Christ, I'm constantly filling up and just experiencing this, this just great um, vibrancy of life where I actually don't feel empty even though I'm exhausted. And that's where you want to be.
where you want to be. That's the sweet spot of Christianity for me. Exhausted and free. And this is what he's after for us. That's what he wants from us. So my charge for us this week is, this is an imperative. All right? This is not a, all right, hey, good sermon, good information, check it off the box, we'll see you next week, we'll put those wild beasts to death. Like, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, hey church, let's set our minds on the things that are above. Let's get after it. Let's open up our Bibles. That's where we're going to find the Lord. That's where we're going to find Christ. Christ being the Word that we see in John 1. And it's active and living. It's not just some stale book that's 2,000 years old that we're just kind of grabbing some, some information from every once in a while to provide kind of a, a rule book for life or a roadmap to life or anything like that. No, it's, it's living and it's active. And the beast that we're dealing with on a daily basis, it is the only offense that we have to attack those things and put them to death. And so we got to get it in our minds so that our hearts can be inflamed by it so that we can actually begin living it out. We just got to do it. And if you've been risen with Christ, guess what? Here's the great thing. You want to. You want to. The desire's there. Christ is in you. He loves the gospel. He loves His Word. He wants it proclaimed, and He wants it exalted, and He wants it getting out, and He wants it first embedded in your mind, to your heart, to the world. Whatever we got to do, do it. You're free to do it. So you don't have to like, I mean, I don't know, if you're type A and you're like, all right, I'm going to map it out. You know, I'm going to do like an hour here. I'm going to do an hour there. And I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to have sub points amongst the. If that's you, that's fine. You're free. Go do that. And if you're on the other flip side of that and you're like kind of like right now, like, man, I just, I think I got like a three hour block over here. I might reschedule that. I'll figure it out. Or you're like, you know what, I'm home. I've got, I got some spare time. I'm just going to dive in and do it right now rather than binge watching Netflix or whatever it looks like. like. Like whatever it is within the way that you're wired to work it out, all I'm saying is, is do it. Just do it. Because you're free to. And He's commanded you to. For your good and His glory. And I promise you, you do it, Come next week when we're walking in here to put to death the deeds of the body, put to death the flesh, put to death those things that are trying to hold you captive, you're going to have some offense be able to start attacking those. It's necessary. Next week is going to be daunting for you. We don't take set your minds on him seriously. So, it's not like a better do it. Same, do it. You're free to do it. All right? So let's do it this week. Let's get after him. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At